You are listening to Property.com, a podcast for academics, students, and anyone else interested in property law. I am Bram Akkermans, and I am a property scholar based at Maastricht University in the Netherlands. In this podcast, we look at all aspects of property from a primarily legal perspective, but also from social science and any other discipline when that is called for. Welcome, everyone, and welcome back to another episode um, of Property Gone. Let's call it like that. Um, I am here with two um, very, very special guests. Um, I practiced on pronouncing their names. Um, Lorna Fox O'Mahony and Mark Rourke. It's great to see you both, Lorna Mark. Um, Really, thanks for um, spending some time with me and talking on the basis of your wonderful new book that was just published called Squatting and the State, published with Cambridge University Press. I'm about 95% way through it for the second time. And I absolutely love it, I must say. It's really a masterpiece. And we are here today, I don't think, to talk about the book, but rather on the basis of the book and about certain themes that manifest itself through that. And I'm wondering if the book is just not a good starting point for us just to jump in and to talk a little bit about why write this book. And why start with this book? And and you will agree with me, I guess, I hope, that looking at the state in property law is not your usual way of approaching the big questions. Um, so let's start there. Why this book and, and what gave rise to it? So so I think I would start just actually where you finished off there, Bram. It's it's around how do we look at big questions uh, in in property law, in property theory, in property politics. Um, And for us, it started with a shared interest in the topic of squatting. And we've for a long time been talking about different ways of understanding squatting as a property problem. And over time, specifically, we're we're interested in homeless squatting in empty land. So specifically in the way in which um, squatting by homeless people using land that has been left empty so investment land or or land that's not not currently in use and as we thought and talked about this problem around homeless squatting and empty land and thought about how law responds to this as a problem we over time realized that that we needed to build a new framework to help us to think and talk about this kind of of big challenge because it cuts across uh, I mean, the, the subtitle to the book is Resilient Property in an Age of Crises. And the age of crises part was was really important because this is a problem that cuts across a whole range of crises that are burning around us at the moment. The affordable housing crises, the financial and economic and inequality crises, land use and environmental sustainability crises. And when we tried to find ways to talk about these things in a property theory frame, we found that we needed to to reach beyond um, what what was available to us uh, within the existing literature. So so we started out planning to write about squatting and we ended up realizing that in order to tackle some of these really big challenges, we needed to create different ways of of framing and, and tackling these sorts of questions. And and I think to to add on to that just a, a bit, one of the things that we found, one of the things that made other approaches unsatisfactory for thinking about this problem was that you had to do a lot of framing of the problem to make those approaches work um, or to find a way to to allocate uh, 
interests that that kept the approach uh, meaningful. And, you know, at a certain point, you just sort of had to say, maybe there is a need to relook at the way we think about property as a whole. And and that's that's kind of where we 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 landed. Is it strange to say in a way? No, not in a way. This is essentially new property theory building where you're constructing new theory. I think that's I think that's where we got Mm -hmm. to. Um, I mean, I think I think, first of all, as as Mark said, one of the problems that we had when we looked to the property theory approaches and methods on the shelf was that they would typically allow you to look at the problem, look at a slice of the problem or or look at the problem through a particular lens. So so you could look at it through a law and economics lens or you could look at it through a land use lens or a housing lens or, you know, you you can look at it through a property rights lens. You can look at it through a a kind of a waste. There, There are lots of different ways that you could slice the problem. But what we couldn't see was a way to um, and what we felt we needed to try and develop was a way to be able to to look at complex problems through a range of different lenses and to be able to find structuring methods to to integrate those different perspectives and to be able to to I mean, there's a part in the book where we talk about the importance of staying in the mess that, that it is much neater and tidier if we if we put boundaries around problems. And in fact, I think that's what certainly is what I was trained to do when I was in law school, mm-hmm. um, because, you know, we started out, how do you tackle a problem question? Well, first of all, you identify the relevant facts. So you decide that some facts are relevant and some are not relevant. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you identify the relevant law in relation. And then you have, so there's a kind of a narrowing way of, of really tackling property solving. And and what we found was that when we applied those sorts of methods to try and think about this problem of homeless squatting and empty land, that it didn't help you to get towards solutions that felt like they would actually work in the real world, in the real political, economic, social, cultural, environmental context that this property exists in. So uh, so I think that was what it, it was really from necessity that that we felt that that unpicking the problem helped us to think about what we need our property theories to be able to do for us in order to be able to to tackle the the big challenges facing property and what sorts of methodology and 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 sort of different ways of of structuring methods we would need to bring in in order to help us to to get to grips with the, the complexity of the problem yeah and and when you frame those problems like that and and this was you know I think one of the things that we had talked about as we were as we were working through this is that when you frame those problems like that, it doesn't mean the problem goes away. And in fact, the problem continues to exert costs on the property system, even though you have framed away a particular slice of it. And so you were never in those little vignettes of framing a problem out, never seeing the entirety of the effect on the property system and how how you needed to really think about how we're really working within a property ecosystem, you know, that 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 has effects uh, across multiple dimensions. And so this becomes Brazilian property theory. And before we dive in, because I think there's so much more to say about this, could we talk for a bit about the concept of resilience and why this is important here in this analysis? Uh, resilience is a is so much of a fashion word these days, too. Um, but the impression I get from your book is that this is you chose this very carefully 
and very precisely because this is what you and I'm, I'm not trying to answer the question for you but rather to set up a little bit of our conversation on this you chose this very carefully because that you you feel at least that's the impression one gets from reading is what you would like property law to do so um there's a big part of this this story bram that's about the way we've engaged with vulnerability theory but but before we get to that actually there was there's something else for me that that is the bridge to what we were just talking about around narrowing frames and one of the things that that worried us a little bit about the way in which property theory discourse has developed especially over the last few decades um is the way in which when we talk about some of these problems there's a tendency to kind of bifurcate into either progressive approaches or conservative approaches and and we use a, a quote from a brilliant article by Stephen Winter in the book where, where he talked about the dangers the risks and perils that follow whenever you scholarship discourse breaks off into a left and a right that are talking past each other and and not necessarily engaging in a way that is that solving property problems and I think one of the things that resilience does for us that's important is that we challenged ourselves to look at the resilience needs of all of the stakeholders in these problems so it means that even if your your kind of inclination might be to say my my natural sympathy is with the homeless squatter for example or my natural sympathy is with the property owner who's been dispossessed or my natural sympathy is with the neighbors who are experiencing the effects of this and so you know and we all come to these questions with with our own researcher biases and and baggage and one of the things that that resilience and the method was doing for us was really disciplining us away from starting with those kinds of directions in mind because you know there has been so much work done um on on those in on those ways of thinking already and and the frustration that we felt was it doesn't get us closer to solving the problem and finding sustainable solutions to these problems it, it sets us up in conflict in the way that we're we're thinking and talking about about problems and one of the really important things that resilience was doing for us was forcing us well we disciplined ourselves to try and think about the resilience needs from from all the stakeholders and from all the angles so you can simultaneously be interested in understanding what are the resilience needs of a homeless squatter and what are the resilience needs of an absentee owner and what are the resilience needs of markets and what are the resilience needs of communities and what are the resilience needs of the property system and crucially for us how do the resilience needs of the state play into all of this in terms of the mediating role that the state's playing in allocating, protecting, enabling, supporting, uh, collaborating with uh, different stakeholders? This is really fascinating to me. Um, I was, in a way, classically trained, classically civil law trained in, in property. And you know, the whole idea that the state is actually involved in this, uh, you know, it's, it's something very far away for a classically trained civil law property lawyer would you say that therefore these choices also in your in your method and in your approaches allows you to incorporate all these different viewpoints and all these different act actors that Lorna is describing yeah and and I think largely this is where we drew resilience in from vulnerability theory as a way of thinking about some of these problems and thinking about how all of these actors have a need for resilience you know, I think one of the interesting things is that there, there is 
there are property theories that find a role for resilience in property, but that resilience is always some sort of bargain for exchange with the state to say, okay, well, you know, in, in exchange for, for recognizing our property rights, you know, we, we give you legitimacy and, and, and credibility as a state. And I think one of the things that we kind of decided as we took a step back, as we said, you know, resilience has to be more than just the property system, right? There has to be more resilience that we talk about when we think about these problems, that the property system is a part of it. it it's, it's part and parcel. And so as we looked at the resilience needs or through the vulnerability lens, one of the things that we found is, is a couple of things. Number one, individuals are inherently vulnerable, drawing on Feynman's work but also human institutions are inherently vulnerable and that includes the state. And so they always are seeking out some form of resilience. They are always seeking out some way of, of, of that, that those basic assets of resilience that they need uh, in order to, to uh, maintain them, their selves, maintain their identities, maintain their, their place within, within a social structure. And when we began to put that against, kind of as Lorna was just talking about when we said, w- once we took these things seriously, looking at this from these various perspectives, one of the things that we began to try to piece together is this question about how does the state's own need for resilience fill in uh, these 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 background questions of other individuals or other institutional needs for resilience? And in, I think one of the large takeaways that we came away with from the book is that the state is not just a provider of resilience, but the state seeks out resilience. And that, that, that sort of lumps together the two various strains that were not previously connected before RPT. And I think, I think one of the things that's important building on that is we took a very applied view of the state so, so, you know, it's very much not thinking in an abstract disembodied way about the, the role of the state within a property theory. Um, we looked, uh, for, we started very closely to the ground, looking at case studies in five jurisdictions. So um, we were using, looking at ways in which over time, states have responded to squatting in different ways, in different legal jurisdictions, in different legal cultures, in different moments of crisis. And the ways in which states have historically and do currently shore up their own vulnerability through the way that they respond to squatting. And that tells us something really important about the relationship between the state and the property system and the relationship between the state and different types of stakeholders within the property system. So we looked at examples from England, Ireland, Spain, the US and South Africa. And we're able to, in a very, in a very applied sort of historicized, contextualized way, understand what those relationships are between the state's own resilience needs, how they align with the resilience needs of different stakeholders, and then what that produces in terms of how states use law and policy in order to respond to the challenges of, of squatting. You describe these these five, if you want, case studies. Um, is it possible in in in, in the scope of a, of a short podcast to 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 share some conclusions? What do we learn from this about the role of the state 
in in terms of you know how they use property and 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 how they are vulnerable and and seek resilience so i think one of the important takeaways for us is that there's not a single model and and again that that leads us to be wary of theoretical accounts of property that tend towards grand theorizing or or the idea that there's a, a sort of single way of thinking about the state and its relationship to a private property system because for us uh a core concept that we developed in the case studies was the idea of the property nomos in each jurisdiction. So the norms and narratives that shape how property is understood and how it's discussed both by lawyers and by the state and, and by the, the population at large. Uh, we we used the idea of nomos uh, from Robert Covers, um, brilliant work on, on nomos and narratives the idea that constitutions and laws and decisions are legal texts, but those legal texts exist within a normative world that gives meaning to them. And that normative world that that creates the meaning and interpretation of the written word of the text is shaped by the histories of those jurisdictions, by how over time uh, meanings and ideas about about property, particularly about land, and and it was interesting to us that amongst the jurisdictions we selected, um, some of them were former colonies, some of them were former colonizers, um, and they had really quite different histories in terms of what access, occupation of land, housing, the ability to own land, trespass, control over access to land. Those those things have all had they're all loaded up with a lot of meaning that's very much anchored in the the property histories of each of those jurisdictions. And that was a really important thing for us in 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 locating the way that a state responds to squatting now against the backdrop of how the state's own resilience in relation to property has been conditioned by by all of that history. Mm-hmm. So um, there is there is you know there's sometimes a tendency to imagine that neoliberalism has has made us all the same and neoliberal globalization has has brought property systems closer together and to some degree it has but what was interesting in in our examination of state responses to squatting through the lens of the history and the nomos was we can see ways that a government in one jurisdiction chooses different responses to a government in another jurisdiction sometimes to very similar pressures and and that was interesting because that told us something about the the power of of that hinterland of property culture and the way in which that shapes the scope for states and for governments to respond in different ways even if they're not necessarily aware of this themselves this is very interesting right. to me right and, and you know that is that's one of the things i think is that's you know kind of another big takeaway that we bring into bring in with this book is just revealing the way that law is used to frame the state away from conflicts um you know we we typically think about problems 
of squatting as problems between owners and intruders, or maybe a negligent property owner is not taking care of his property. So it's a proper problem between the property owner and his neighbors, or if they have enough support from the local state, the property owner in the state. But we don't think about all those things together happening simultaneously. And, and you know, I think to be able to piece together the narratives of how we think about what the state, what we think the state should be up to at the same time that we are looking at how that has influenced the development of the property system, and the way that we approach traditional property problems, and then rethink that, that set of constructs um, is, is I think one of the broad takeaways that we try to bring forward in the book, you know, is, is to, to free, to free our legislators, to free our judges to think about property um, a bit more freely than just the shackles that they've been given. Yeah, because I think all of us, all property lawyers who are in some way active in, in also with legislators, we encounter this point, not that, that legislators have a very narrow and maybe classical definition of what they can do and particularly also what they cannot do um, in terms of framing of, of, of property problems. Um, and do I understand you correctly, Mark? You're, you're essentially saying also that we should escape or we should help escape the legislature taking such a narrow view every now and then, particularly when it comes to these problems. No, well, I, I, I think I might frame it just a little bit different. We should free our legislature from from recasting the same old narratives about why we have property and what we're doing and to think critically about the problems on the ground without the aid of those framing narratives that tend to be more ideologically based than than problem based and i think i think that was that's a link in maybe to to the way in which the importance of scale and the importance of of thinking about scale in mm. the book because you know, as as we're having this conversation we're talking about the state but that's a kind of shorthand um because actually the state is not a single actor and it's important in the way in which we're trying to unpack state responses that we we're recognizing that the state is many different things. It's it's an aggregation of state actors and state institutions operating at different levels, uh, at the national level, at the regional level, at the city level. And and there are different pressures playing out that mm -hmm. are at those different levels of the state. And, and as Mark just said, that sometimes there's a choice between or, or we see a contrast between ideological framing, which you more often see at a higher level, um, at a national or federal level, um, versus more pragmatic on the ground problem solving frames, which you're more likely to see at the city level or the local level. Uh, James C. Scott and Mariana Valverde are, are, are great on this and, and really helped us in thinking through the, the importance of and, and the resilience needs of the state. Mm -hmm at those different layers and levels. And, and then of course, um, it, it's it's become a habit for us to talk about the state and the government as if they're the same thing. And one of the other things that, that we find interesting when we were unpicking the historic nomos is of course the idea that the state is also the aggregation of we the people. And the idea that the state is not something separate um, from the people that is imposing ideas about property or or um, or decisions, but but that the idea of the nomos 
helps us to think more about our collective ownership of what property means within our state. This is very interesting to me and also speaking a little bit from my own experience that where the state operates civil servants act and these civil servants are not necessarily lawyers and that's of course a very at least i find that always in practice a very uh, sometimes surprising but i also find at least in my own country so in the netherlands that these civil servants the non-lawyer civil servants basically ride on the nomos of the lawyers that they get because it's the lawyers that 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 feed them this um, how did you describe this rather traditional viewpoint of what can, in particular, what cannot be done? Yeah, it, you know, one of the things that we've been talking about lately about within RPT is the role of expertise, the way that uh, expertise is channeled in different spaces around property law. And I think you're exactly right. I mean, in the sen- in one sense, there is there's a point where you have these different forms of expertise in the forms of lawmaking versus uh, administering law that don't necessarily talk well to each other um, or that become dependent upon one another. And so they one becomes scaled above uh, um, the other in terms of who gets to carry out what function of the state or who gets to to, to enforce what thing. Um, yeah, I think, I think, I mean, I think as legal educators, and as property law teachers, there are really important questions for us to reflect on in how we present the world of property and how we present property problems and how we talk to students about the methodologies that are available to us in tackling property problems. Mm-hmm. And I think that, uh, you know, the work that uh, researchers like yourself are doing on on broadening how we understand and think about method within property law research is is really important. The other thing I think is, is, I mean, there's some interesting, fairly recent examples of the where we've seen these norms shift. And, you know, if you, if you take something like the idea that uh, governments or civil servants have absorbed a view that property rights are sacrosanct and therefore they're curtailed by this, um, Two recent examples, I think, that are interesting. One is uh, Rachel Walsh uh, has written about Ireland during the pandemic uh, because there were two Supreme Court decisions in the 1980s uh, which said that it was unconstitutional. Well, they dealt with elements of of, uh, aspects of of rent control legislation um, that were considered to be unconstitutional. And ever since, for 40 years, there had been this, this fear that any action by the government on rent control would be unconstitutional. And therefore you have people sort of backing away because that then becomes the received idea about the constraints you're working within. And and Rachel explains how during the pandemic, the shifting pressures on state actors meant that actually those, those kinds of views, norms, assumptions are considered afresh in the context of uh, new challenges and and you know in, interesting to see how you see moments of crisis um opening up those themes and opening up those questions for us to to think about again the other one is uh, just recently we've seen Scotland has mm. uh, announced rent freeze uh, legislation and and again an interesting example of how in a moment of crisis cost of living crisis that the the Nicola Sturgeon sees the source of resilience 
in supporting tenants who are struggling with with rent and that becomes the priority and there's there there may be something that that would be really interesting to unpick around the property nomos and the history of property and ideas about property and people and private property rights and use and access to land in Scotland and in Ireland that that might tell us something interesting about how political leaders in those jurisdictions can reach for those kinds of solutions uh, when in other jurisdictions that doesn't seem to to be something that happens or, or hasn't happened yet. This is really interesting uh, to me, Lorna. And does this also connect, I wonder, to the to the the we the people argument that you just made? That of course also the composition of who makes up the state is also changing. There's new generations of these civil servants in there. At least in my experience, when I go, for example, to the Dutch Ministry of Interior Affairs, and you look at who does housing. Um, you know, in the housing unit of the Ministry of Internal Affairs. Well, let me never say something about the average age, um, but most of the civil servants there are young, young in their 20s, maybe early 30s, and they have very different ideas about. Um, and I, I'm sure that's that's not only in the Netherlands. That must be a, a you know a worldwide thing as as the baby boomers are are retiring and you know letting go letting go of control a little bit. And I'm wondering, just to add to, to what you were saying, that yes, this is a political thing and it takes political courage, but you know, the, the state itself also changes as a reflection of these younger generations that I, at least in my experience, are much more willing to, also for the state to step in than the generations before that. Yeah, I, I, I think in, you know, I was thinking about this as you were talking about, you know, the way we teach property, the way we teach, you know, these things is that, you know, as we've gone through this project, I can see places where I've been teaching resilient property theory all along, but didn't have a, didn't have a way of, of describing it, didn't have um, the language, did, didn't have a way of, of pulling all of these nodes together in a way to, that, that you can articulate to students. And now, you know, I taught resilient property theory for the first time last year to my property class classes. And I think, you know, that that is something that um, I, I hope we we continue to see the new generation of civil servants um, taking these things seriously, because I think I think it is hard to move beyond the conception you have of how property and the state interact. If all you've been taught is that there's a public land, there's a private land, and never the two shall meet. And I, I mean, I think you're absolutely right, Bram, that there, there is something seismic in generational perspectives on property that is is a function of the age of crisis that we live in and the way in which younger generations particularly experience that age of crisis, the way in which an affordable housing crisis is impacting on younger generations in being able to access housing and uh, probably for many unimaginable that they could own housing. Um, we've got the financial economic crisis and, and the way in which that has impacted on a generation who are now coming out of since 2007, uh, economic financial crisis, now pandemic crisis, now um, sort of post-pandemic cost of living crisis. And that gives them a, a different lens and and also a generation who I think are much better educated and much mm. more um much more uh, agitated about 
about environmental crisis and sustainability crisis. And I think that, for, again, for us, the starting point is when we try to, to think through how to talk about this problem of homeless squatting and empty land in a way that is recognising all of these crises that are raging around us and that takes them seriously in trying to recognise there are what, what are sometimes thought of as being sort of irreconcilable differences of views. Mm-hmm. But we need to find a way to to structure through that. That means that that we're taking seriously the range of different views and trying to find ways of reconciling them and um, working towards agreed solutions. And I, I know um, it sometimes feels as if compromise has has gone out of fashion a little bit. Um, but but what we see through the multi-scalar way of thinking about state responses is that there are compromises that are built into state responses. Mm-hmm. So if you if you only look at the national level, you will see a more ideological response because that's typically what we get at the national level. And if we only teach our students national legislation and national level case law, then that's the impression that they'll get. Whereas when we look through some of the case studies down into the ways in which the interplay between national legislation and on the ground policy decisions, uh, even things like um, city level law um, around fining people who have left land empty or taxing them in different ways um, or enabling empty properties to be occupied or co-opting squatters to to help to 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 um, bring property back into use and to improve neighborhoods. You know, it actually shows us that you can you can get a wrong sense of what the dominant norm is or the idea that there is a single essence dominant norm if you focus on the national but if you look through the layers of responses actually there is we use equilibrium theory to talk about that part of the method mm-hmm. and and you know that's a kind of sustainable compromise um it's it's not about saying um you know the left has won or the right has won it's about understanding that systemic compromise um is is not a bad place to get to and and that across the layers of the state there are lots of different agendas and resilience needs that are playing out and that create this more sort of composite layered set of responses and there's just more nuance in that I think than than we see if if we only look at one bit of the property law system. This is a really important but also complicating conclusion that you're drawing there Lorna um, you know, and as a legal educator, I'm immediately thinking, how do how do I translate this to my students? You know, how do I explain them? Um, how do how do we give people the big picture? Um, and the big picture here, not meaning only the state level, but how do you how do we give students, but also researchers, this multi-layered, complex picture? So, so I think we have to look at the at some of these specific ways that property thought has failed and how different cities have have dealt with these problems and so you know barcelona and new york are really good examples in both of these places so both new york in the 1980s and um uh coming out of a financial crisis in the 1970s had an acute housing issue barcelona coming out of the 2008 housing crash has had an acute housing issue uh, dealing with with empty prop, both of these places dealing with empty properties and skyrocketing costs. 
And so I think one of the things that you can see in both of those places is this interesting push and pull of how the property system interacts. You know, one of the broad takeaways in New York is, you know, kind of right along the lines of what, what Lorna was saying earlier was, you know, compromise is possible, right? So there is a space for compromise because at the end of the day, one of the one of the takeaways from the New York uh, example of the Lower East Side housing squatters is that the city comes to the negotiating table and says, let's let's find a way to work through and put aside. And what they essentially did is they put aside the property uh, things that would frame away this problem um, in order to say, how can we deal with what our real exigent problems are, namely that we need affordable housing in these communities you are looking to to create affordable housing in these communities through co-ops. So, you know, in one sense, they they came to the table. Uh, it took a lawsuit to get them to the table, but they came to the table um, in order to to come to those solutions. And what I love about that, Mark, is that example. It was a lawsuit that the squatters lost. <clears throat> yeah. So if you look at the legislation and the litigation as your source of understanding how property law works, you would get a partial picture of mm-hmm. what actually happened in this situation. But as Mark says, you know, when when you follow through the story about actually what happened next after they were unsuccessful in the litigation, it's this negotiation. Yeah, and it, and and you know, Barcelona maybe presents an example that is not yet complete yet. You know, because the story is still kind of unfolding in Barcelona, but. You know, one of the things that you saw was you saw the state specifically trying to leverage the local state, trying to leverage its powers to deal with an affordable housing problem and the federal state reaching down to say, nope, you can't do this. No, this is this is not in in the tool set you have to deal with these problems. And so when you deal with these from a law perspective, and these are only disputes that go before courts you get a very narrow view about how to solve this problem. Whereas Barcelona probably would be far better off coming to some sort of compromise, much like New York came to in the 1980s, of finding a way to have some level of housing provision in these empty spaces that uh, that are currently being taxed or now fined. This gives us a, a rather broad of course but also complex overview of of your approach your your you know on on rpt as as mark calls it of resilience property theory as we're coming to the end now that you're you're letting go this book we are all reading it loads of people are reading it this is your chance in a way you know to have a, a couple of final saves on it before we really start engaging with it how should we engage with this how should how how would you like us to engage with resilient property theory um and, and move the scholarship forward. So I think I think one thing that has been important for us is to recognize that complex problems, complex, important, urgent problems require us to grapple with mm-hmm. complexity. And there is it's always easier to reach for simple solutions. And, and we see that in we see that in political life today and 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 we see it you know in so many settings and and but but there are simple solutions that don't necessarily produce sustainable solutions that that actually tackle the problem hmm. so so for us um there was something important about you know staying in the mess 
and and resisting the temptation to try and reach for resolution too quickly um but to to have to to be disciplined in um in in having some 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 humility around what the right answers are and around our convictions about what the right answers are um but instead to try and follow the story through to to seek first to understand how how do these property problems play out in different settings in different contexts and what insights does that give us about how the system works and from there how can that then help us think about what the levers are um if you're trying to advocate for a different kind of allocation of resilience i think for me um i think that there may be some that read the book and want to frame the book as a as just a housing book or a book about housing and homelessness and I think what I would encourage uh, people to do is to resist the urge to frame uh, this argument as as just being about one thing, but rather that that what we've used squatting on empty land as is an example for how we can rethink about property systems and how some of the dynamics around property systems, particularly around complex problems, need to be, we need to patiently spend um, time. And and I think just one other point that I think, you know, and we haven't really brought this up, but, you know, I'll draw on Tim Mulvaney, who, who talks about epistemic humility. You know, one of the things that pushed us into this approach was recognizing that, you know, as Lorna had said earlier, that while we may have answers, you know, what resilient property does is it gives you the space as a researcher to put your own biases, your own ideologies on the shelf um, and to take seriously the the interests of others. And so I think that the other way I would hope that people see this book is an, is an attempt to reflect our need for epistemic humility as we think about really hard problems. The book is Squatting in the State. Lorna, Mark, thank you so much. Thank, thank you, you very Brown. much. Thank you for having us in the podcast. Yeah.